you know, we now have systems where we can transfer data and value in a way that is fairer, faster, cheaper, and the world is going to be a much brighter place because of it. And I feel like those of us who have been working in the space that we almost have a secret where we kind of know what the future is going to look like, and it's phenomenal. This is Open Out Crypto, a podcast exploring how blockchain and cryptocurrencies are shaping the financial markets of tomorrow with your hosts, Rumi Morales and Colleen Sullivan. Before we even begin, here's our obligatory disclaimer. The views Rumi and I share on the show are our own and not attributable to our respective firms and any other entities or projects we're involved with. Our firms may be investors or traders in some of the companies and projects we discuss on the show. Nothing we say should be considered as investment advice. And while we're always trying to be as accurate and timely as possible, sometimes we're wrong. You should always do your own research. Finally, I'm a lawyer, but not yours, and nothing I say should be construed as legal advice. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Open Out Crypto. I am Rumi Morales. I'm here with Colleen Sullivan, and uh, we are here to talk about the amazing worlds of cryptocurrency and digital finance. Colleen, it's so good to see you, as always. So good to see you, Rumi. How have you been? You enjoying that life? <laughs> oh, living the dream, living the yeah. dream. <laughs> it it yeah. has been it has been interesting in the crypto world, I'm sure, in general as well as as people start emerging and meeting up in person again. Um, there seems to be a, a lot of activity, and there's some very exciting developments. Uh, in, for example, in the CBDC, the central bank digital currency space, right? Yeah. So. Rumi, did you catch Federal Reserve Vice Chair for Supervision Randall Quarles' speech on June 28th? You know, I don't really listen to Federal Reserve speeches all that often, <laughs> but I will tell you something. I would like to hear about it for sure because, you know, I just Googled the phrase CBDC, crypto, and if you look on Google News, the headlines are China, Vietnam, Israel, mm -hmm right nigeria the philippines like everyone's talking about cbdc so i hope that the u.s federal reserve is talking about it too well they are and what i found i mean it wasn't the most fascinating thing but <laughs> one okay. of the most fascinating things yeah. about this speech was the title did you see that title Rumi? Uh, colleen i'm not the super fan that you seem to be in the federal reserve but <laughs> i think it was the title that caught okay. me it's called parachute pants and central bank money. So wow. who would have even thought of putting those two things in the same sentence? So my first reaction was, what does MC Hammer have to do with central bank digital currencies? Uh -huh. I mean, our listeners may be too young to know who MC Hammer was. I, he basically made parachute pants popular. <laughs> I think you know him. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sad to think that we have listeners who don't know MC Hammer. I'm totally okay not knowing Randall Quarles' title of the speech, but MC Hammer... <laughs> Parachute pants. Come on, everyone. <laughs> I know. It, it's really important stuff. So I'm sure like if you looked at Google right now, search terms for parachute pants are shooting up just because of this show. <laughs> so, all right. So Corals uses parachute pants as an example of an American fad gone awry. And then he seamlessly moves into how all of the discussion of late seems to be around the need for the U.S. Federal Reserve to issue a U.S. central bank digital currency. And he's questioning, is this a fad gone awry hmm. or do we need it? Which I think is an interesting question because most of the time when we hear the Fed talk about a US CBDC, it's implied that we need it. 
So I thought mm. it was really interesting that Quarles is questioning, do we need it at all? And what I really liked about the speech was he seems to be supportive of the idea of the private sector issuing US dollar backed stable coins. In fact, he says that's something that the Fed should not be afraid of. Mm. And he talks about how private US dollar backed stable coins may actually support the role of the dollar in the global economy. So I thought it was a very, and, and he says, you know, do we really need a US CBDC? Or can we essentially let the private sector, with the proper supervision, take care of this themselves? That Which I think is, is really interesting. It is interesting. That is, saying it's a loaded point, perhaps, is not the right term. But can you, can you imagine letting the U.S. private sector take care of it themselves? You, you know, you're going to be throwing po- politics in here. You're going to be throwing all sorts of issues if you think the private sector is going to be able to take care of money in, in a way. Uh, you have people on both sides, right, bo- both sides of the fence weighing in here. What, what, do you, what do you make of it? Yeah, well, I think it's really interesting because I think the Federal Reserve still does what it does. Commercial banks still do what they do. And then you've got the USDCs of the world where they're not issuing new money. They're just issuing stable coins backed by US dollars. And you can also see if, you know, DM and Silvergate are able to get that stable coin off the ground. Facebook has 2.7 billion monthly active users. Mm-hmm. So that would seem on the surface to help the US dollar in terms of circulation throughout the world. So it's an interesting concept. And you know, it's interesting too that you brought up um, when you Googled CBDC China, because I feel like a year ago, Every time we heard about a U.S. CBDC, it was in connection with the China threat. But I think what we're sensing now is a little different, where there seems to be fear not of China, but what's happening right now just with the growth of stablecoins and crypto assets generally. So it's, it's, I think there's been a shift that it's not that threat, you know, far away in China. But it's just the threat of the entire crypto ecosystem and how it's just grown exponentially. Right. The, the, the pieces on the chessboard here are definitely shifting around. And I think people are trying to be strategic about how best to make the next move. Right. So, yes, there's China. But on those headlines, uh, it was primarily around other Asian countries, Vietnam, Japan, the Philippines. So, of course, they have, I think, a very strong geopolitical interest as well, just geographically being so much closer to China and wanting to maintain their own influence over their economies and their financial systems and trying to be efficient. Like, who knows? I think it is true. Um, Quarles is probably raising the right question. It's like, should we be doing this? And, and if so, why? But mm-hmm. again, I'm also going to throw politics back in here. I mean, Quarles. I think uh, was in the George W. Bush administration. He was appointed to the Fed by Trump. Uh, some people could say this is just a Republican position. The Democrats are going to be very much against the private sector handling money in this way. Um, I don't know. I I I I I I would like to think that there's there's a clear direction in terms of uh, supporting innovation and the strength of the U.S. dollar in our role in the global economy, but. In, in this case, the chessboard is all over the place because you're dealing with countries, you're dealing with politicians within those countries, and then you're dealing with state currencies, fiat currencies versus cryptocurrencies, which have no have no owner, right? So yeah, there's 
there's a lot of unknowns in terms of will there continue to be dominant forms of payment, and if so, why? The way I think about it, I've always thought this should, there should be a public-private partnership, right? So like when we talk about a U.S. CBDC, I often hear, well, we'll have one in five years. And hmm. Rumi, that would be remarkable, right, for right. the U.S. government <laughs> to innovate at that speed, yep. especially given the security and privacy considerations involved. But, but think about what five years means in this space and the development that will occur. So the crypto economy looks small today, all things considered. I think it's about $1.4 trillion as the date of this podcast. Five years ago, though, it was $15 billion. Mm. So we often talk about Uniswap. Two years ago, it didn't even exist. That's right. Today, 42,000 trading pairs. So what if this parallel financial system, which has all this momentum behind it, continues to grow at even a fraction of that rate over the next five years, and we still don't have a U.S. CBDC. So, and that doesn't even take into account all these new economies that aren't even here yet, the gaming, mm -hmm. creator, social economies, and the kind of scale that we're going to have here. And right. that's where I start to think that this private-public par pri partnership makes a lot of sense just in terms of getting a U.S. digital dollar faster to the market. It's already there. You know, we've seen, I think USDC is 25 billion right now. A year ago, it was only 900 million. So that's where I feel like in some ways, the only way for the Federal Reserve to catch up, if you will, to the existing, just the crypto ecosystem, let alone other jurisdictions, is through that partnership. Is there any analog in the past where something like this has happened that you can point to and say, it was also successful. I'm just thinking in my own head, when have we ever seen something like this before work? Yeah, you know, I'm not enough of a historian to know right. like what, you know, how it worked during the Civil War and the, yeah, you know, the no, I mean, I, I, was, them, but. I was thinking about Pierpont, right? Uh, yeah. J.P. Morgan, the man himself, and how he was basically the de facto central bank for the United States. And, and but there right, was a until crisis. there was a central bank, right. it was him. It yeah. was him, like, oh, maybe he's the <laughs> he's the example. I don't know. Um, but I this is my way of saying I admire your thinking here. I would like to agree. I'm just wondering, knowing our reality is if it, if it can happen. Um, if there are past historical examples that we can look at, it's like, well, maybe that gives us a little bit more assurance. Um, but I hear you. I, I just, I, I've, I've changed personally. I used to be much more open-minded and positive about uh, the U.S. regulatory system and financial system in general, the traditional financial world uh, catching up in time. Uh, but increasingly, I don't think that's going to be the case. And we're going to have the crypto economies continue to boom. And the U.S. and traditional financial worlds will just be very slowly behind. And I don't know. I don't know what that's going to lead to. We will see. When I think about these crypto economies, it's not that they don't want a digital dollar in them. In fact, they want USDC. You know, but each of these economies determine what assets they want in them. So if you take something like Compound, you know, Compound determines what crypto assets are allowed in its ecosystem. They can, you know, Compound can have DAI, it can have Comp, it can have Tether, it can have USDC, it can have 0x. So that's the, the other thing I think about is if, if a U.S. CBDC takes such a long time to arrive and we have all these crypto economies just building up and building up and building up, are they going to mm -hmm. allow a U.S. CBDC in? 
you know, or right. is it better to just, yeah, keep that in through something like USDC, where it's already permitted in that ecosystem and it's backed by U.S. dollars. So right. I, I and so I think these are going to be interesting questions to grapple with. And, and, and I shouldn't be such a chicken and say I don't know where it's going to lead. I mean, I do have some I- ideas, but I can't. I, I'm still trying to formulate them in a, in a clear way because not not only are we talking about the huge growth of crypto economies, like you said, from what was it, just 50? What were the numbers from five years ago versus today that were like 1.7 oh, yeah. trillion today? 15 billion, 15 billion. 1.4 trillion. Yeah, trillion. five years. Right. So in, in, f- in another five years time and another five years time, uh, just the size of this is going to be so, is it going to be competitive? Is it going to be complementary? The other thing interesting here is obviously it's the younger generation that is much more fluid about this. And it used to be that, you know, someone entering the workforce, you kind of work your way up through this hierarchy of things that exist. Now, not only are we creating a parallel financial system and parallel economy, but it's fueled by very, very in, on the whole, younger people, right, who may choose that economy to participate in versus the traditional one. You bet. It's such a great point. There is definitely a generational paradigm shift that has occurred. And Rumi, think about our kids. They're yep. more familiar with V-Bucks and GTA dollars than they are U.S. dollars. My son would rather have V-Bucks any day than a U.S. dollar. So they're used to internet, native, digital money. Mm-hmm. So it, it will be really interesting to see what happens with that generation and what kind of currencies that generation wants to use. It, you know, somewhat related just on this generational shift, I had someone asking me about how to think about valuations when investing in this space in tokens. Mm-hmm. And of course, they brought up Dogecoin, right? And, and I just tried to explain that in crypto, memes are fundamentals. Mm-hmm. So to that younger generation, you have to apply new ways of thinking. And I think that that probably holds true in this context, too. The younger generation is going to want to be in these crypto economies. What assets are they going to use to enter those economies? What assets are allowed in those economies? It's just these questions aren't straightforward anymore. They're not straightforward. But at the same time, I also look at your kids, my kids are almost almost wise enough to know what a Bitcoin is, still a couple of years of schooling left, but this is just, for them straightforward is going to be participating in, in the crypto world. They're not going to be able to, I think, understand why you have to go through this traditional hierarchical way of working, right? It's not just about money and payments, but it's also about the organization that you're a part of. Um, everything is going to be fundamentally transformed here. So yeah, in, in that landscape, where is a US CBDC? Right? Where, That's right. Where, where is its relevance? We shall see. Well, we are so lucky to have Sarah Olson with us today. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks, Colleen. We first met, I want to say it was a few years ago when you were head of business development at Gemini and you are now at JP Morgan, head of business development for Coin Systems. And prior to crypto, you were in traditional finance with Apollo, Brightwood Capital. And the thing that makes me most excited about you, though, is that if I remember correctly, you also founded a company that designed and created custom wedding gowns back in the day. 
Um, that is correct. I think that I have definitely tried to leave traditional finance um, multiple times, but after my first job <laughs> out of college, I was working for Rockefeller Financial, um, allocating to hedge funds and private equity funds and direct investments. Um, I quit that job and I started a high-end apparel company um, that I ran for basically a couple of years until I ran out of money and had to get a real job again. <laughs> And then back to traditional finance and then over to crypto. Awesome. Um, well, yeah. yeah and, and could you talk to us about that? How did you decide to move from TradFi, as we call it, into crypto? TradFi, I like that. I'm going to start using that. Um, so again, I you know no, nothing wrong with the asset management space, but I really did not enjoy working in you know in the investment management industry. And uh, I grew up in Colorado. I went to a small high school here. And a good friend of mine um, named Nick Carey started a company called Blockchain.com, uh, which was one of the you know first blockchain explorers, and and you know um, now like one of the world's largest Bitcoin wallet companies. Yeah. And you know at the time, you know this was in early 2014. You know he you know, began to sort of introduce me to the technology. Um, I didn't understand a ton of it. Like basically the only thing I understood was that if you were, you know, a housewife in Saudi Arabia and you owned a Bitcoin, that was worth the same as a hedge fund manager in New York owning a Bitcoin. And, you know, and that Bitcoin could not be taken from you by, you know, your government or your family or, or anyone else. And for me, that was enough to like really fall in love with the space. Um, I tried to get Nick to hire me multiple times and he was like, Sarah, you know, what are you talking about? We're like 11, you know, the, the technologists, you know, working out of an apartment in York. Um, but I was lucky enough in uh, 2016 to be contacted by a recruiter, you know, who said, would you be interested in interviewing for a Bitcoin company? You know, and that's when I was connected with Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss um, and, uh, and joined Gemini's head of business development there. Yeah, what a fun time. I mean, I remember seeing you in Singapore when you were visiting various exchanges. I mean, you ran so many different things at Gemini. Just you had such a wide scope of initiatives that you looked at there. It must have been a, a pretty good experience. It was it was really remarkable. I mean, in a, a huge part of that is a testament to to Cameron and Tyler, who are, are like very visionary, I would say, in their own right. Um, you know, they, they give, um, they gave me and, you know, kind of, you know, a lot of folks at the time, a lot of room to like play in traffic, as I would say, yeah. and experiment. And, um, and so we were able to do, you know, a lot of really cool things. And, and that would be everything from, you know, working with traditional institutions to, you know, architect enterprise custody solutions to acquiring an NFT platform to launching a stable coin. Um, so it was, it, it was a really, really cool experience. Yeah. And one of the things that we always liked about Gemini was they did care about regulation, still do. It, it's been a focus of their business, which was unique in the crypto space, you know, when they first started out. So we always appreciated that about them. It's it's kind of amazing because, you know, I think one of the things that people often forget, too, is when Cameron and Tyler started that business, they were like already billionaires in their own right, you know, before they you know took the leap into crypto. And they really went the, you know, the for 
but you know, I think for the better, like the painful route in terms of building, you know, the right infrastructure, and um, and that was across, you know, compliance um, in terms of having, you know, a world class, you know, KYC, BSA, AML program. Um, but it was also on the technology side too. I mean, I you know, I still think Gemini has, you know, probably the best custody solution in the world. Um, you know, we were very focused on institutional infrastructure for our matching engine. Um, you know, I, I think that we were the first to move into a dedicated data center. Um, so it was really focused on doing things the right way, which at times could be, you know, sort of painful because yeah. we could see, you know, other people kind of inching past us, you know, um, for kind of, cut, you know, cutting corners. But, um, you know, I think it's ultimately been like a great institution for the industry. Yeah. And they did it on the human side, bringing people like you in, you know, coming out of traditional finance and used to those types of compliance policies, procedures, regulations, and living within those guardrails, but like you said, then also giving you the autonomy to really experiment within the space. So it's pretty cool. And okay, so then how do you go from Gemini to JP Morgan? Tell us about that and what you're doing at JP Morgan. Sure. So um, I got to know the JP Morgan team quite well, really just because of Gemini, we were looking for a, a corporate bank account with a major bank. Um, you know, it's, uh, we were working with Silvergate has been just a, you know, was a fantastic partner and is a fantastic partner um, to, uh, to to Gemini in the crypto space. And, and Colleen, obviously, um, you know, you, you know, yeah, shout out Silvergate. Well. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's 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 remarkable what Alan and uh, and Ben and, and the team have done over there. Um, but at the time, we were looking in terms of um, you know looking to do a, just a few things that Silvergate couldn't do at the time for us, and um, and needed a major global bank to do that. And uh, and I got to know the JP Morgan team really well, really just because we we needed a bank account. Um, but through that, I got to know you know their blockchain team, their fintech investment banking team, and and others over there that were looking at the space. Um, so in you know early of last year, um, when you know the team was launching Onyx, I got the call um, from Christine Moy, who said you know would you be interested in speaking with our team? You know we 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 brought together a bunch of you know different groups focused on blockchain initiatives and other fintech inis- initiatives, and we think this would be really interesting for you. Cool. And can you tell us what is Onyx? What do you do there? Sure. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting because Onyx is a new group, but JP Morgan has been working on blockchain technology for the last five years. Um, so I would say it's the commercialization efforts of kind of all of that work, research, um, uh, you know, legacy projects. And that's everything from, um, you know, JP Morgan um, developing Forum, uh, which is a fork of Ethereum, to you know a variety of blockchain-based products that they've launched over the past few years. Um, so you know, Onyx, I would say, you know, we call it our startup within JP Morgan, but it's focused on cutting-edge payments technologies. Uh, blockchain being a huge component of that, um, but you know, we, we look at other technologies as well. That's great. It, you know, and one of the things we talk about a lot on this show is. When do we start seeing the bridges being built, not only from centralized crypto into DeFi, but traditional finance into centralized crypto and then even into DeFi? You know, from the perspective that you have being at you know one of the largest institutions in the world, how do you see that happening and what do you see as the roadmap ahead there? Awesome. Well, I like this question because one, it's like the, the trillion dollar question, right. literally. And it also gives me the ability to both like kind of trash banks and also trash crypto, you know, <laughs> all in, in one question. Um, but I think for, for banks first, 
you know, I think that banks really need to understand that we now have a technology that truly re-architects how we transfer value. And I think that banks feel like that they were affected by the, you know, the coming of the internet, but I don't think they were really. I mean, I think the internet has helped us digitize information and it's helped us do sort of the same things that we were doing before in banking, you know, better and, you know, in an easier way, but it didn't really re-architect the rails. You know, so now we have this, you know, and I guess better said, like, what do banks do? You know, predominantly, they sit in the middle of transactions as a trusted counterparty and they maintain books and records. And, you know, what does blockchain do that basically, you know, maintains book, books and records and completely eliminates the need for a central counterparty? And, and so I think that it's really incumbent on banks to understand, like, hey, there's now a better technology to do this in a faster, cheaper, you know, fairer way. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that every protocol allows for that today and there's not issues about it. But, but really, like, we're entering into a new age that's re-architecting how the rails work. Um, and, and so I think it's incumbent on banks to really sort of step up, understand this, and, you know, almost disrupt themselves if they want to stay alive. Um, on the on the crypto side, um, you know, and I can always consider myself first and foremost a member of the crypto community. I'll say we do not do ourselves a lot of favors with respect to bringing in tradi traditional financial yes. institutions. Um, and so there's there's a lot of things I think crypto needs to do, um, you know, to to make you know the, the regulated, you know, banks, asset management firms, um, uh, clearing houses, and the like uh, comfortable. But um, you know, I, I, I'd say the two big ones are, are um, one, like really understanding compliance. You know, if you're a regulated bank, you know, you cannot be trading on platforms where you don't know your counterparty or where you're, you know, you're not meeting, you know, the requirements of, you know, the, you know, the, the, the laws and regulations that are set out, you know, for good reason. Um, and the way that we may implement them or adhere to them may change, but, you know, it's still, you know, they're still fundamentally important. Um, and, you know, and I don't think, you know, you or I and most other people did not get into this industry to facilitate, you know, anti-money laundering or terrorist financing, you know, we, we need a better system and, and compliance has to be a key component of that. Um, and I think that there are a lot of institutions in, in, in crypto that are, are focused on it, but I don't think that I don't think they all are. And, and I think that um, I think the bar is, is higher than where, where most think it is. Um, so that's a, the compliance piece. And then, you know, from the um, from the technical side, you know, I think that um, uh, that folks in the crypto industry need to understand what true enterprise infrastructure looks like at a banking level. You know, so, uh, you know, a, 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 the a DEX and, um, you know, DeFi protocols are really cool. But if I went to the CTO and said, oh, hey, test this out with like my retail MetaMask wallet, or here's a, you know, here's a Tracer wallet, you know, go take client assets, put them on this and then, you know, and then trade, you know, he would look at me like I was crazy. So it's, um, you know, thinking about what type of institutional infrastructure you need to be a true fiduciary and then also access these rails. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Um, and it, yeah, and I often think like you need people like you sitting in the middle who can help bridge that gap where you've been embedded in the crypto community for three plus years, I think around that time with Gemini. And then you've also got the institutional experience prior to that and now subsequent to just help translate back and forth. Because, you know, I think so many of the teams developing in the crypto space 
I mean, you know, you've got teenagers, right, to a certain extent, and then up to like mid 20s who just don't have that experience. They're crypto first. And, you know, I always try to remind regulators and policymakers that there's really, for the most part, right, there, there's always going to be a few bad apples, but for the most part, there's no ill intent. There's just a lack of understanding as to exactly what you just described, how regulated financial institutions work. Um, so, yeah, so I do think as a community, we have to work hard to bridge that gap and, you know, just help each side translate what's going on, um, even down to the language we use. Right. I mean, I'm sure that the people at J.P. Morgan have to love it when you talk about rug pulls and, you know, the, the various um, things that come up in crypto. It's like a whole different language to a certain extent. It's. Re sometimes really difficult. I mean, there are certain terms that we've developed as the crypto community, you know, maybe looking towards traditional finance that I don't think have helped us very much. I see. You know, we talk about, <laughs> oh my God. Um, but I even think of like, you know, custom digital assets that like really confuses people yeah. if you're not working with this technology day to day. I mean, you know, what, uh, I think the term private key management is so much easier once you explain kind of how blockchain works than saying custody, you know, custody digital assets. Assets live on a blockchain, you know, you custody a private key. Yet, you know, I, um, uh, you know, even even a concept as basic as that is something that I'm, you know, still explaining to people yeah. in the traditional space because it's tough to wrap your head around. Yeah, it's such a great point where it, maybe in some cases the crypto community thought that by borrowing terms from traditional finance, it would make things easier to understand. But the reality of it is, especially from a regulatory standpoint, you sort of mix things that shouldn't be mixed. And then people tend to think, well, the rules that apply to traditional custody and financial services perhaps apply equally or in the same way to what's going on in crypto when they are entirely different instruments, right? I, I completely. So it, yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about sort of how as the crypto industry maybe hasn't done itself any favors in the terminology that it's used um, along the way. But there are certain things that like will also never translate as well. So you want to talk about something like a Bitcoin settlement, like when does a Bitcoin settle? And um, and I'll talk with folks, you know, at JP Morgan and they'll want to know like at what point, you know, you know, is a Bitcoin transaction final, you know, and that's, that's like asking, you know, at what point does someone become bald, right? You know, it's, um, you know, there's different <laughs> standards for everyone, you know, is it, three blocks? Is it five yeah. blocks? Is it when a transaction hits the mempool? You know, and so certain certain concepts like that, that are, um, you know, they're features, not bugs, um, but it'll never translate over to traditional yeah, finance. That's a great point. All right. I'm going to shift slightly on you here because I've enjoyed our discussions in the past on the concept of central bank digital currencies and stable coins. So, you know, I always enjoy hearing what you think here, what the path ahead may look like. Um, do things like Tether, USDC, die survive if we end up with a US CBDC? Like, how do you see this area unfolding? This is a really tough topic for me and something that I'm asked about a lot. But I think what's really tough when you're talking about um, sovereign currency is that how governments think about their own currency really changes from you know from country to country and so if you're the marshall islands you know how you'll think about what you need from your currency is very different than if you're you know if, if, if you're the chinese government for example 
Um, and, and one of the things that's been, you know, a little tough for me to wrap my head around, um, you know, for, for our country, you know, as we think about the central bank is, is, you know, as the crypto community describes, you know, the central bank as this, um, I, I, I don't know, like almost like, you know, along with the treasury sort of printing dollars and like holding them in some vaults as if they're Scrooge McDuck, like swimming through the coins, um, you know, and, and the truth of the matter is, you know, a central bank has, you know, it, 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 it's essentially a, you know, a market maker, an asset manager to control the money supply. And it's a lender because it's the lender of the last resort of the banks, but it's, in, it's inherently centralized you know, and, and the way that we get leverage into our system is through commercial banks, and that's imperative for economic health. Um, and so if, you know, and, and, and so if, if we were just all kind of dealing with Bitcoin and we didn't have a way of getting, you know, this kind of implicit leverage into our system, you know, we would have a money velocity of, of like one and, and, you know, and our economy would be terrible. So it's important that we can go to institutions and borrow money to go to college and to start a business. And, you know, and, and it makes sense to have that underwriting happen at a, you know, commercial bank level or, you know, an M1 level. You know, so it's um, so the stuff gets really, really tricky. You know, like does um, you know, does the 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 treasury putting cash on a blockchain kind of solve that? Um, you know, I I don't know. Um, but I think that this is like it's a really nuanced concept, and you know, and the way that it should be done and how it should be done is you know, it, it, it's something where it's uh, it, you know, people have, it's a lot more complicated than I think that the the crypto industry. Or the traditional, you know, financial industry, you know, gives a credit. Yeah, absolutely. And then you layer in concepts like obviously needing to secure the system first and foremost. If you're talking about a U.S. central bank digital currency, and then privacy, right? And to your point, how different jurisdictions handle things like privacy is going to be very different based on the rule set of that country. Yeah, and not not to get too political too, but one of the things that's really bothered me with the crypto community, you know, through the pandemic is, you know, these um, this narrative of oh, you know, the um, the Fed's printing more money, therefore, you know, um, buy Bitcoin, you know, and we've been in a time that's been really difficult for you know the majority of you know the country, and in a time where you know th this has really hit you know our most vulnerable population, you know, the hardest, and and what's great about living in in a country in which you know you have a, a central bank is that you have the ability to you know give give relief. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the narrative during this time should not have been, oh, we should not be, you know, printing more money. Um, you know, the narrative should have been like, wow, like we need better infrastructure to be able to remit funds to people directly or remit, you know, funds to businesses directly, you know, and, and blockchain could provide that infrastructure. Um, but the fact that we're, you know, that we live in a, in a country where, you know, the central bank can control the money supply, like I don't, again, I don't see that as a flaw at all. Yeah, no, like you said, it's way more nuanced than uh, the surface level conversations that seem to be often had or grabbing the headlines on this topic. Um, all right, one more gear switch here, NFTs. So um, yeah, give us your thoughts. Wow, my favorite and least favorite topic. Um, <laughs> it's so, it, yeah, so I mean, I, I think there's a lot of bad things that I 
I could say about sort of the, the NFT run up. However, you know, I think that the, the sort of introduction of NFTs to the mainstream has done a few things that have been really, really good. Um, one, I think it's introduced the concept to the um, sort of the mainstream population of having a way to digitally and decentrally authenticate goods. And I think that people are beginning to see that. And so it doesn't have to be a YouTube clip of, you know, a basketball player or a, you know, a, a sort of a, a JPEG file of a, of a, you know, piece of people art. You know, you, you can have ways that where you're authenticating um, that something is, is, is real. You can track the provenance of ownership. And, um, and, I, and I think the, um, the innovation that's coming from that is really, really powerful. Um, you know, I think second, um, I think that people are starting to, you know, love the idea that they can kind of, that they can control their own brand and, and be able to make money from that. Um, my husband manages baseball players, as you know, and, um, you know, I worked with one of his clients, Taiwan Walker, to create an NFT for him. Um, and, you know, Taiwan is an incredibly sophisticated guy. Um, and he was not like, oh, everybody else has an NFT. So I want an NFT. He's been a, an investor in the crypto space for, for quite some time and really understood, wow, this gives, you know, this gives me sort of total control over my brand and my narrative. You know, this is something that I want to understand better. Um, and that was a really, really cool project. Um, and then third, I think that it's beginning to teach people that um, that what's important to people uh, is really dependent on the person. And and what, when I say that, I mean that you know we have to stop thinking that digital goods are not real goods. And so if someone's you know clothes in their closet, you know, for their virtual closet are worth more to them than their clothes in their real closet. It's not for you or I to say, you know, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, it, the, 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 those virtual clothes are worth whatever that that person is willing to pay for it and what somebody else is willing to pay for it. Completely agree. Yeah. On all fronts there. And it is interesting, too, in the sense that, you know, again, you think about how you've always had these central uh, intermediaries kind of sitting in between, whether it's athletes, creators and their fans. And now you get that direct engagement. You know, how do you want to engage with your fans with this NFT? It's probably not just selling more merch, right? It's like I'm going to unlock special benefits for you, my early fans that have been there from day one, you'd be able to delineate those things. I just think it brings much better alignment um, throughout. So I think that it's good. I don't even think we've scratched the surface, right, on NFTs. Oh, completely. Yeah, like the NFT that we did for um, Taiwan, you know, and again, it was not, it was, it was not focusing on, you know, doing it like perfectly the right way or trying to maximize dollars. You know, it was, Hey, what would what does this look like if we use totally open source software and platforms, and then um, directly engage with fans? And so, you know, we printed the NFT using you know a standard ERC seven twenty one smart contract. Um, we used Arweave as the backend, you know, yes, file storage. Yes, we love Arweave. <laughs> So do I. I mean, again, like what a what a great protocol. Um, and uh, you know, we we listed it on OpenSea, and then he tweeted it out, um, you know, to his fan base, and then all of the, uh, you know the proceeds went to you know um, uh, you know a charity that he chose. Um, but again, this was not you know we, we did not have to go to you know we didn't have to go to anyone. Right. I mean, like all you needed was a laptop to do that, and and that that's instantly powerful. To everyone in the world with an internet connection, right? Yeah, entirely. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. 
Okay, Sarah, rapid fire. We always do this at the end. So I've got three surprise oh, no. questions. Yeah, Rumi's much better at this stuff than me, but since she's not here, <laughs> I'm going to do my best. So, okay. Most interesting person you've met in crypto and why? I'm secretly hoping that you're going to say a particular person who you and I both really oh like, God. but you could choose whoever you want. Oh my, well, are you thinking of Apollo? Yes. Oh my gosh. He's the best. He the is, biggest what a wonderful sweetheart. person. Yes. Yeah. So Apollo has been an early investor um, and a great member of the crypto community for, for quite some time. Um, you know, I had met him kind of years ago when at Gemini we were launching the BCA um, and then, you know, connected at a conference in Singapore. Um, and then I think, you know, it, we're calling you, you and I and Apollo and his team, we're all out. Um, but he is, um, yeah, like, again, just shockingly impressive, really nuanced about the space, really understands the regulatory framework, um, you know, always looking to learn. And um, and I think it's just because he has like this beautiful, like growth mindset um, that, you know, and it, he's kind of a superhuman, obviously, for those who are listening who don't know who he is. I, you know, he's one of the most winning winter Olympians of all time. He also um, won Dancing with the Stars, uh, which is fun for me because I've been taking ballroom dancing lessons with my husband recently. Uh, but he's just, uh, yeah, he's, he's fantastic. Yeah, what a sweetheart. I just thought he was so kind and humble and what a great listener. He asked great questions. And then I remember like the grandmas in Singapore, like fawning over him when they'd notice who he was. And, and I think it's the dancing with the stars thing. Like the grandmas love it. Like Apollo is their guy. So, OK, favorite book and why? Oh, wow. Um, I, I read a lot of novels, which I know is like not what um, you're supposed to say. No, it's totally cool. Um, yeah. And this, so, you know, I'm a huge sci-fi fan. And I think my, you know, probably favorite book is uh, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, but I would say that for, for those who want, you know, kind of a more of a typical answer, um, I recently read the, the Square and the Tower by Neil Ferguson, which is about, um, you know, hierarchies versus networks and, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, spoiler alert, networks, networks always win. win. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I think if you're, a, you know, if you're a, a crypto person and you kind of want to understand how, you know, this revolution is fitting into kind of history, that that's a great book to read. Awesome. We'll drop that in the show notes, too. So thank you, Sarah. And then last one, yeah. crypto or wedding dresses for the win? Oh, crypto. It's, um, okay. you know, I think <laughs> I, 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 I realized that, like, I love building um so you know it's it's great to it's great to be able to build something and, and point to it and say okay you know this is this is something that you know we've created and we've kind of put out into the universe um but yeah no i mean the, the crypto is you know absolutely like I, I love being in the space i love the you know the, the my favorite people i've met through crypto it's you know it, it's really um uh it, it's just a fantastic community and I think, too, what's so crazy about it, and, and I am going to sound like a crazy person here, is once you really get into the space and you start sort of seeing what this technology can do, you just have you have total conviction that this is the way that the world is moving. And you may not understand how we're going to get to the endpoint, and it may be a choppier ride than you think. But, you know, we now have systems where we can, you know, where we can transfer data um, and value in a way that is fair 
faster, cheaper, and the world is going to be a much brighter place because of it. And I feel like those of us who have been, you know, working in the space that we almost have the secret where we kind of know what the future is going to look like. And, and, and it's phenomenal. Well, Sarah Olson, speaking of the world being a better, brighter place, that's how I feel every time I talk with you. You are oh my, gosh, my me favorite too. person in this space. And I can't thank you enough for spending time with us today. Um, where can people find you? I think like with JP Morgan, you kind of have to be stealth mode, but I, I think you're out there somewhere. Yeah, no, I mean, I would say that I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm not on Twitter, uh, but I'm on uh, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm always, you know, happy to connect with new folks. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, I probably need a bigger social media presence. I just don't trust myself with it. No, I think you're cool when you don't have a big one. Then you're like kind of the mysterious, smart woman behind the scenes. So I, I kind of like that vibe. I think it's good. I just know that like, and it's not even that I think that I sort of post something that was like, that's going to be in the future sort of antithetical to my views. I'm just so nerdy that I would like put, you know, a picture or something up and I would be like, oh my gosh, like, well, like, why did I do that? <laughs> or, um, or I can't believe I like was wearing that outfit. So it's, it's better for me just to stay on LinkedIn. <laughs> You're awesome, Sarah Olson. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks so much, Colleen. I really appreciate it. Colleen, it was so much fun speaking with you today, as always. Thank you. It's so great to talk with you, Rumi, my favorite part of every week. You're so kind. Um, for our so kind listeners as well, please make sure to visit our website, openoutcrypto.com, uh, sign up for our newsletter. Uh, wherever you get your podcast, be sure to like us, give us a good rating, tell your friends. It would mean a lot to us. Um, I'm also going to hype up the fact that uh, Outlier Ventures is now running a dedicated program to support the growth of the Filecoin Foundation and the IPFS ecosystem. So uh, Outlier Ventures and Filecoin have an accelerator program together. Please be sure to visit Outlier's website. Uh, look at Basecamp, especially for Filecoin Basecamp. We're seeking the next wave of incredible entrepreneurs uh, building off of Filecoin. So please apply. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Thanks again, Colleen. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Open Out Crypto. Please reach out to us on Twitter at Open Out Crypto and by email at info at openoutcrypto.com. Check out our website for show notes and other information about the show, our hosts, and our guests. Thanks for listening.